0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the China-Australia relationship and how Australia's perspectives and policies towards China are changing. From 2009 to 2019, trade between China and Australia tripled, transforming China into Australia's largest trade partner. China has also emerged as Australia's largest source of international students, and Mandarin is Australia's second most spoken language. In 2014, both countries described their relationship as a comprehensive strategic partnership. Despite these connections, the relationship has come under strain in recent years. In 2018, Australia passed the Espionage and Foreign Interference Act, which was implicitly directed at China and Canberra banned Huawei from the country's 5G infrastructure. The sharpest decline in relations came in May 2020, when Australia called for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. China responded by imposing significant tariffs on Australian barley and wine, trade tariffs on beef and commodities, and issuing strong statements accusing Australia of anti-China behavior. Where does the relationship go from here, and what are the implications for the rest of the world? Joining us today to discuss the China-Australia relationship is Dr. Charles Edell. Dr. Edell is an inaugural Australia chair and a senior advisor at CSIS. He previously taught at the University of Sydney, where he was also a senior fellow at the United States Studies Center. Prior to that, Dr. Edel was a professor of strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College and served on the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff from 2015 to 2017. In that role, he advised the Secretary of State on political and security issues in the Indo-Pacific. He has also been a Global Fellow at the Wilson Center and a Henry Liu Scholar at Peking University's Center for International and Strategic Studies. And he was awarded the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship. Charlie, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, uh, Bonnie. I'm a huge fan of the China Power podcast, and this is a career highlight to get to come on and talk with you.
0: Thank you, Charlie. That's very kind. I'd like to start our discussion today by discussing how Australia views China and particularly how Australia's perception of China has changed over time. So when we look at China... In Australia, the two sides seem to have enjoyed a close relationship in the early 2010s and even further upgraded their relationship twice in 2013 and 2014. Charlie, what was Australia's strategic outlook on China like at that
1: time? Well, look, it it seems like a totally different era that, uh, as you noted, it was just back in 2014, not that long ago, that Xi Jinping came to Australia, addressed the Australian parliament, Uh, And said that he came there in a mission of friendship and goodwill. And just after that, uh, Australia and China signed a free trade agreement. Uh, They upgraded uh, the strategic nature, uh, at least the title of their relationship between each other. And things were going well. And the backdrop to understanding all that is as China opened up over the last 30 plus years, it needed an awful lot of commodities to fuel its growth. And Australia supplied. An enormous amount of those. You know, I think it's something like a tripling of the amount of Australian commodities uh, that have been sold there. We can see that there are hundreds of billions of dollars. And the number one statistic that I think is really important here is that 40% of all of Australia's exports go to China, right? 40%, or at least prior to 2020, right? And so, Therefore, there was a narrative that hung around Australia that Australia, which had been in the black for 28 years of uninterrupted growth, right, uh, more than any other advanced economy of the world, had weathered uh, the storms, particularly of the global financial crisis because of its relationship with China. That was, I think, the backdrop to that blossoming uh, of relationships. But there was always another element Right. Uh, Tony Abbott, uh, former prime minister of Australia, at one point told uh, his counterpart, Angela Merkel, in Germany that Australia's relationship with China was always predicated on greed and fear. Uh, And over the last couple of years, uh, for a number of reasons, which we're going to get into, I'm sure, the greed factor has been on the decline while the fear factor has been on the rise.
0: So what caused the greed factor to decline and the fear factor to rise in Australia? What exactly did China do that increased Australian anxiety with regard to Chinese activities against Australia or how Australia was operating in the Indo-Pacific at large?
1: Yeah, well, it really was a, 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 an accumulation of things. Uh, so uh, this began to kind of burst out into the public sphere in late 2016 and really early 2017. Uh, and it was a series of, uh, you know, aggressive maneuvers that China was taking in the region. Obviously, we saw them in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea and elsewhere, which were, of course, on the radar in Australia. But it was particularly what was happening inside of Australia domestically that began to change the nature of the political debate. So in late 2016, it was revealed in a rather public way that a sitting Australian senator had been on the take, uh, right, had been really kind of interacting quite closely with an individual uh, linked to the CCP and parroting Beijing's lines on the South China Sea and a number of other things. This, of course, occurred against the backdrop that then uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had become increasingly concerned about this interference in domestic politics within Australia, had asked for a confidential study to be done in government, and It was shocking uh, if you talk to Australian politicians, no less policymakers, about what had happened. And then we began to see out in the public space the revelations not only of kind of interference with the domestic political parties, but the reach inside of Australia mucking around with the ethnic Chinese uh, community. There are 1.2 million Australians of Chinese descent. Uh, There is this famous moment when, forget about uh, the party in power, Labour, who is the opposition, was called in to talk with the Chinese official when they were debating an extradition treaty uh, back in 2016. And he said, we know that the Chinese community supports Labour. It would be really too bad if all of that support went away if you didn't support this particular piece of legislation, right, which is a threat to weaponize your citizens against you if you don't do what Beijing wants. So again, it was an accumulation of this combined with as we began to see fair amount of economic leverage that China had, which really had started earlier, but kind of burst into public view in 2020 as the economic coercion hammer began to come down repeatedly against Australia. And of course, the other thing that we want to throw into the mix too, is the decision by the government in August of 2018, that they were going to say that Huawei and ZTE were not allowed to build out the 5G architecture because there were too many security concerns. So all of these kind of accumulated both from the government perspective, but also really in the public and the business domain to begin to force a shift within how Australia thought about its relationship with China. And you need look no further than, you know, some of the polling that's been done around this, Bonnie. I mean, precipitous declines about Australians' favorability uh, feelings towards China. I mean, we saw really at the beginning of the pandemic and as these kind of coercive economic measures began to happen, 20-point drop, uh, quicker, steeper, faster than anywhere else in the world about how Australians felt about their relationship with China.
0: And Charlie, if I recall correctly, you were in Australia for this period of critical shift in Australian views on China. How much is there a divide now between the Australian business community and where the Australia policy and national security community is?
1: Well, you know, Bonnie, so it's true. We were there. uh, We were living overseas from uh, about August 2017 till November uh, 2020. It was fascinating. Just as the United States was undergoing its own transformation in its China policy, it was happening in Australia as well, but it was different. And, you know, one of the key statistics I've already mentioned is 40 percent of outbound trade went to China. So, you know, friends of mine who worked in government said that, uh, you know, back in the heyday, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, if anyone, the prime minister, the foreign minister said anything that was mildly critical of China, like we don't countenance what you were doing in the South China Sea in contravention of international law, they could set a timer uh, and it would take 10 to 12 minutes before a business executive would call them and start complaining why are you damaging australian china relations you know i fast forward a little bit to uh, i wrote a report with an australian colleague of mine uh, john lee on the future of u.s australian relations in the era of great power competition and it came out in july 2019 and we said decoupling is not the right word diversification probably is 40 percent just gives too much leverage predicated on a single source of failure. And I talked about this with the business community. uh, And the response I generally got was, sounds great, uh, but why would we diversify when we're making so much money? And that's particularly true because the nature of what Australia sells is largely commodity based. And we said because companies hedge risk all the time for any number of reasons. And simply understanding that political factors are now increasingly intruding into economic matters makes it prudent to diversify. And I got to, you know, thanks, buddy, stick to your lane, we'll stick to ours. Now, fast forward to what had begun to happen in 2020 after I've now referenced this several times, but the kind of coercive hammer began to come to rain down uh, on Australia across so many different sectors. And what happened was that under duress, Australian businesses found that they were indeed able to diversify and find other markets quicker than they thought. This wasn't true for all the different sectors and commodities, but actually the export market grew because of largely surging commodity prices. Uh, But this was done under duress, not under kind of willingness.
0: So, what are some of the lessons learned that Australia took from China's use of economic pressure? And are these lessons applicable to other countries beyond Australia?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Bonnie. Uh, You know, first of all, they're evolving, right? Because we're still seeing the data come in. But I think the Number one drive from Beijing on using these suite of tools uh, against Australia was if we increase your economic pain, that has bleed over effects into your political decision making. So uh, as long as we kind of can tweak you there, you will become a little bit more compliant. And the result has not been that, right? The result has been that as they amped up the economic pressure, Australia has become more assertive and more vocal on the global stage about how it responds. And frankly, it's tanked relations for certainly the medium, if not the long term, between the two nations, because this is not only a government decision. Everyone in Australia is conscious of this at this point, And you've seen a plummeting in how the Australian public views and thinks about China and its relations towards that. You know, the lessons you had asked me uh, about this is that, first of all, and this is true for Australia, but I think it's true in a broader sense as well, countries cannot separate their political and their economic interactions with China, because China does not separate those two. And the second one is, particularly for a nation like Australia, which was more exposed economically than almost any other advanced Western nation. The bark might be worse than the bite here, right? And that's because of macroeconomic conditions, right? These are commodities that are sold on a global market. But frankly, when we think about all the different commodities that were put in the hurt locker, right? Uh, Beef, wheat, barley, uh, Australian wine, rock lobsters. We can also say the ones that didn't go in there, like iron ore, because frankly, China needs iron ore from Australia. And the other thing that's really interesting here is when we talk about commodities, you know, these are fungible things that can be sold on the global market. So the interesting part is it's affected different sectors differently. All right. So like the Australian beef and wine sector is still hurting and has not been able to make up the losses that they've had. But Australian exports over the past year in aggregate have gone up not down because they found other markets and because global commodity prices have uh, risen in tandem with that.
0: So as we're seeing shifts in the Australian business community, as well as the policy community, what did the Australian government do in response to this perceived increased Chinese threat?
1: Well, I mean, we started talking about this a second ago, right, that starting in 2017, uh, the government had kind of completed its own internal security study of interference into the Australian state and therefore said, we are too porous as a democracy. There are way too many avenues of influence that are uh, covert, that are clandestine and are corrupting. And we just want to foreclose those channels. A democracy is by its nature open. So we need to be careful about what we foreclose and what we open up. But anything that is coercive, clandestine, uh, or corrupting is bushing, right? We're not going to allow this to happen anymore. So they stood up legislation to close some of those loopholes, uh, just saying that uh, people shouldn't be allowed to interfere in our own politics. So that was kind of nail number one in the coffin of Australia-China relations. It was, by the way, country agnostic. It was not specifically directed against China. Second one was that decision, the first country in the world to kind of move on Huawei, uh, NZTE for that matter saying that we are not going to allow them to build the backbone of our technological infrastructure, right? Router switches, data localization, because we just perceive that to be an undue uh, security risk. The third area, and I know this is something that you pay an awful lot of attention to, is, of course, in the strategic and in the military space, uh, that we begin to see Australia issues white papers, right, from both their Defense Department and their Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And they had issued one just a couple of years ago. And I think the realization was made that with the military modernization happening in the region, right, I can translate Australian, that means in China, the rest of the region uh, was not keeping pace fast enough. So they started issuing updates more quickly about both the reorientation of where Australia's forces would be and the type of capabilities that it needed to acquire.
0: Are there any gaps or differences between how the Australian public views China versus the Australian government?
1: You know, this is an evolving question, Bonnie, uh, because uh, some of the political critique, I mean, right, there's quite a active uh, and vibrant and oftentimes nasty debate in Australia because it's a democracy, right, about whether or not the government is doing this right is that the government has been leading too far too fast. It's gotten too far ahead of itself. That is, in fact, the opposition's critique, that they shouldn't be the first mover on a lot of these things because it's a medium-sized power. Now, your question was about whom is leading whom. Is the government kind of moving or is the public pushing it? And I think there's a dynamic here, right? So obviously, the government moved first on some of these things. I talked about kind of the private government survey that was done, right? The study about how much domestic interference was there. We can see legislation that was moved right back in 2017 and 2018 on countering foreign interference, on tightening screening of foreign investment, on making sure that Huawei couldn't build out the 5G. But I have to say for uh, you know our time living down there, this is not a conversation that was only in the Canberra bubble. And as things accumulated, as they went on, the number of conversations I had up in Sydney, we were living in Sydney, great city, uh, but the number of conversations I was having with my neighbors, they were all conscious of this. And frankly, you could see starting in 2017, a downward trend, a downward pressure from the public, sending a signal to their political leaders that they were getting increasingly wary of Australia's relationship with China. And in fact, you could see a 20-point drop in favorability ratings towards China over the past year and a half. You know, there's now only 14% of the public that trusts China and thinks that it is a partner that they want to engage with more of the future. That's dropped almost by 15, 20 percentage points each year. So there's an argument to be made that the public is in front and, in fact, leading the government on this, and look no further than the Lowy Institute does great polling on this, that this past year they asked the question, do you think that the government should be doing more to diversify our trade partners, especially away from China? The answer was yes, by 94%. Uh, So the public really does want a not destabilizing, but an assertive set of policies. Uh, So there's a dynamic going on here between leaderships of both parties and the Australian public.
0: So just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, in terms of the Australian public opinion, there's no other country in the Indo-Pacific in which the Australians have a worse public opinion about than China.
1: No, Uh, I mean, we should probably see how they feel about North Korea, probably way down there. And I'd be Curious where Russia falls, Uh, you know, over the last week, it's kind of the bottoms dropped out. But no, there is no country uh, that they feel that way, nor is there any country that the drop has been so steep and so sudden.
0: Wow, that is striking. So Charlie, where is the Australian government now when it comes to China? One thing that uh, is noted by many Chinese experts when looking at Australia is AUKUS, could you describe how we got from where you just described to AUKUS and how you see AUKUS playing out in terms of the future of Australia China relations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but look, uh, let me e- even take a step back before that, uh, Bonnie, because I-, I think the source of anger uh, that you see, certainly the Australian perception, and I think it's a correct one, is not uh, any individual piece, uh, whether or not we're talking about the kind of the tightening of foreign investment screening. Uh, if we're tightening of kind of foreign interference legislation, or even something in the military domain like AUKUS. The perception is that Australia is a bad example. Uh, It's a wayward kangaroo. They say this sometimes in global times. You know, there's some great, very colorful language, as there always is in the global times. But we are worried that, this is from Beijing's perspective, that Australia, as a medium-sized country, is showing that when you crank up the pressure economically, militarily, and politically, not all countries bend or break. In fact, some countries are willing to push back and take assertive measures on their own to protect their own sovereignty and, frankly, with others and pointing out a different route to go. So I think the real concern and fear coming out of Beijing was this is a negative influence, uh, a negative example, rather, of what states might do in response to to coercion, right? It does not fit the hierarchical model when states push back. So kind of, that's the larger backdrop to this. Your question specifically about AUKUS was uh, what? what is the backdrop to AUKUS? Why did it happen? And uh, I say all the time that, right, AUKUS was the surprise announcement uh, September of 2020 between AW, Australia, the UK, and the US. It's, a, the, the, AUKUS is a great acronym if you say it enough times, I guess. Uh, but to come together, to help provide advanced capabilities for Australia. Now, the headline grabber is, of course, submarines, but I think the real kind of gem of AUKUS is its advanced capabilities, and it's a vehicle to share advanced technology with America's closest allies, right? Nuclear propulsion has only been shared once in American history with the UK four decades ago. This is an agreement that technology is going to be transferred to allow Australia to kind of beef up its own capabilities, not only on submarines, but across an entire suite of uh, things that are going to become more important in the future, AI, quantum, long-range strike, hypersonics. But again, The reason that this happened, because this was not an American idea, it was rather an Australian and a British one, where they came to the Americans, was I had mentioned that the Aussies are kind of updating how they think about their security environment more quickly than they had in the past. And the major muscle movement here is the defense strategic update of July 2020, when Australia said, the environment is degrading quicker than we had anticipated. So we have to adjust with it, and we need to become more involved and invested in our own near abroad, in our own region. We need to acquire more lethal capabilities that can hold Chinese forces, even if they don't say the C word, further away from Australia. And we need to do so in conjunction with more partners. Now, if you understand that, more geographically circumscribed. More punching power, more ability to project power into the region, right, creating basically an A2AD bubble uh, around Australia. That is the source from which everything else flows, including AUKUS.
0: Let me follow up on that to understand what's driving this. So what does Australia fear that China might do militarily?
1: Well, look, the existential fear, uh, I I think, is the fear of abandonment, Australia will talk about, right, that uh, it, it has in the past, you know, first with the British, then with the United States, had a very powerful ally that can help protect it, right? And so the existential fear is what happens if Australia is in a position, as it were in 1941, 1942, where it is cut off and isolated and has to fight on its own, Right. Uh, So we're not talking necessarily about a fear of invasion, right, territorial defense. But the question is, is Australia in an environment where it can be coerced and isolated on its own? That's obviously true in the military sense. And you can see kind of the alignment of how they're thinking about their strategy. But that has kind of bleed over effects into how they think about themselves as a democratic nation uh, working to align with others in the economic realm and frankly, in the technological realm as well.
0: How has Australia perceived China's reaction to AUKUS?
1: Angrily, but they don't care. I think the perception is China's made its decisions about that it's going to become a more assertive power, even a more aggressive power, and we're going to make our own sovereign decisions. We still want to work with China where we can, but these are our decisions made, and frankly, they are prompted by China becoming more assertive. So because of that, Australia needs to react in a way that's going to kind of better secure their own future and help stabilize the region.
0: I want to now move to an issue that you've covered and discussed quite a bit, and that's also in the news, which is the conflict in Ukraine. How does Australia view China's role in this conflict? And how does Australia view the China Russia relationship?
1: With anger, uh, I think, as everyone who is watching about this, you know, first of all, the no limit partnership declared between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin on the eve of the Olympics. Now we're seeing stories kind of floating around about whether or not uh, there was an ask by Xi Jinping to please wait for the invasion to begin until after the Olympics. Uh, if that is an ask, one might ask, uh, why is he asking? Does he know that there is about to be an invasion? There's also a story kind of floating around that the specifically the Australian Prime Minister has referred to about at a moment when the entire world is working to avoid conflict prior to the invasion trying to tamp down and stabilize the situation and beginning to say, here's what we will do economically if you proceed Vladimir Putin. Why has China opened up and surreptitiously its commodities markets, its wheat exports uh, to Russia as the rest of the world is choking it off? So I think there is a real anger that China has been enabling what Russia is doing. Uh, so you're seeing that, and it's by the way, I should note too, I'm talking about the prime minister, this is very bipartisan in Australia, especially because we're in the midst of an election there as well.
0: Are there concerns in Australia that China might be emboldened by what Russia is doing in Ukraine, or that a stronger, closer China-Russia relationship could pose more serious challenges to Australia and the Indo-Pacific at large?
1: Yes, uh, just like the rest of the world is kind of wondering, does what happens in Ukraine based on the territorial aggression, the vi- you know, flagrant violations of sovereignty of Ukraine by Russia. Is that precedent for things that might happen in Asia and specifically with Taiwan? I mean, right, we, we could have this endless conversation. Is Ukraine a good analogy for Taiwan? And so, yes, the, there's quite a lot of debate about this. And in fact, just as in Japan, uh, we've seen kind of Taiwan kind of gaining more precedence uh, in how they think about their strategic environment. And that's why you saw increasing calls by the Japanese and U.S. governments to collaborate. They're not quite there in Australia, but we're seeing more of a Taiwan debate and what Australia would do in a contingency begin to kind of bleed out into the public space on this. You know, frankly, I I was lucky enough to write uh, with an Australian friend a piece just last week about what lessons can be uh, taken from the initial response to Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I know that this got in some, uh, you know, good readership uh, in Canberra. And the idea is that everything that the United States has done to help lead uh, the pushback against Russia has been really creative diplomacy. uh, But it's also obviously not stopped what they're doing. So the question now is, how do you build on that momentum? How do you sharpen it and how do you apply it to the Indo-Pacific in a bunch of different categories? Because I think we're beginning to see the emergence of a template of dealing with an aggressive nation here.
0: Could you elaborate on what this template is and what lessons learned folks are taking?
1: So, look, first of all, we saw that the United States was way ahead of the curve in terms of dealing with information and actually kind of dominating the narrative and putting Russia on its back foot. That is clear application, I think, into the disinformation realm out in Asia, particularly when we're talking about kind of gray zone uh, forces, not not little, little green men, but little blue men who pretend to be fishermen and are out on Chinese fishing vessels all over the South China Sea. There's a way that we can get ahead of the curve there. You know, a second one is sanctions obviously have had bite, but there was an endless debate about whether or not. They should be used before an invasion or to punish afterwards. They are even more hard to do with China because China is so tied in and so integral to the global economy. So it strikes me that uh, we should be sharpening our pencils right now on that escalation ladder of sanctions with regards to China. Here's where we start and here's where we go. And that should be an allied-led effort. You know, in terms of stockpiling, right? So in Ukraine uh, in the global markets, uh, people have been cut off from energy, right? This is clear application, I think, when we begin to think about critical supplies, critical minerals, uh, and energy. Uh, you know, the other two ones, which I think are pretty clear as the military situation evolves in Ukraine, are that we are all rushing to give weapons to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves, right? Uh, javelins, anti-tank missiles, whether or not you know, we give them uh, MiGs is the debate of the day. Right? But the question here is for Taiwan, frankly, for the Philippines and Vietnam, what things do they need now as opposed to when a conflict turns hot so they can have those ahead of time? And then the final one, I would say, is we've seen the United States working you know, hand in glove with its NATO allies to buttress the eastern flank of NATO, right, to make sure that there is no spillover of the conflict elsewhere, rushing forces in there. Uh, This is true for how NATO is thinking about it, too. There is no NATO in Asia. There will never be an an Asian NATO. But that actually might be a blessing in disguise because countries that are working really closely together, Australia and the United States, Japan and Australia and the United States, need to start thinking now and probably moving a little faster than they have been about those force posture initiatives. Right. Where do they need to be to make sure that there isn't further spillover and that you have the right types of forces in theater?
0: You mentioned the Quad. So when you look at the situation in Ukraine, do you see that the Quad will have a larger security component moving forward? Or do you see that the security cooperation will occur parallel, at, but in a separate track from the Quad?
1: Well, look, with everything Quad, there's a internal and an external dynamic. Uh, there's a public and a private reason and impetus behind this, right? So, it's very clear that over the past year, the decision has been made. I think it's a, it was a really good decision, right, that the United States, and frankly, with its allies, didn't have a positive, affirmative vision for the region. It was just saying, China bad, don't do that, our friends, allies, and partners. And so the Quad was really used and reframed as a vehicle to begin to offer something uh, to the region, right, offering to provide public goods. Offering to help provide the foundations for prosperity. Uh, We're still waiting to see how this actually develops in terms of infrastructure projects. But we know that there's been really some great successes, particularly on the vaccine distribution and the global public health. The hard power elements were deliberately dialed down, I think, in response to the region, right, particularly Southeast Asia, that didn't like this framing, didn't find it particularly helpful. But the reason that the Quad is together in the first place is because of its alarm for what China has been doing. The fact that you have four maritime democracies with advanced capabilities isn't lost on anyone and certainly not lost on Beijing. So, Bonnie, your question about whether or not there can be more kind of securitized aspects to this. I said there's a public and a private discussion every time the Quad leaders or the, you know, the secretaries of states and the, the ministers of foreign affairs get together, their public statements are about all the good that they're doing. And then they close the doors and they have a discussion, I would imagine, about how to counter China's course of activities. And the security element looms quite large there. Look, year one, the decision was made to make this an affirmative agenda. Now we are into year two of the Biden administration. And because of the way that events have unfolded, particularly after Ukraine, and the sense of anxiety that so many of us now feel, I think this is a useful moment to consider about whether or not some of those other elements begin to take on accelerated shape and form.
0: Thank you, Charlie. We've covered a lot of ground today in terms of both drivers of China-Australia ties, but also how dynamics in Ukraine are driving or impacting Australia's assessment of China. So let me end this podcast with one final question for you. How do you see Australia's relationship with China evolving in the coming years?
1: I think that ties will stabilize uh, between Australia uh, and China, but not in the near term. You know, I I actually think in in a very different way, the United States and Australia are quite different. This parallels the track that uh, Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell, before they went into government, framed, where they said that competition is essential to cooperation with Beijing. But you need to think of it as sequenced, right? Uh, China respects power and the willingness to use power. So becoming more competitive actually sets the bar in a better place to uh, move on to offers of coordination uh, and cooperation, although there won't be trade-offs anymore, right? We're not going to dial back things that are core to national interests in order to For China to help us with global public goods, be they climate or development aid. So uh, I think that we're likely to see kind of a further erosion and a downturn in Australian China relations. There might be a bit of a reset uh, in the next year or so. We do have an election coming up in Australia. But over the long term, I think that we're trying to kind of suss out all together and collectively how do we speak to China in a way? that lets them understand they are no longer operating in a permissive environment. And once we begin to understand that, then we can reset relations in a better way.
0: That's a good optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much, Charlie, for joining us today.